0: you pray with me for just a moment our father we come to you now as we have just been singing asking for the spirit of god to open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word lord i pray that the the text before us this morning would encourage us would draw us nearer to you would exhort us in our faith and was would lead us toward greater christ likeness for this text in particular, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged to stand firm for our faith, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of difficulties which cause pain, and which cause hardship as a result of our faithfulness to you. Give us the courage to do so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn with me to John chapter 15, right at the very end of the chapter. And we'll be considering verses 26 through chapter 16, verse 4, the first half of verse 4. And we'll just go ahead and read the text together. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Well, we've been making the case in John 15 and now we're finally moving into John 16 that to be a follower of Christ costs. There is a, a payment involved. It doesn't cost you to obtain salvation from sin. The forgiveness of your trespasses against holy God, that's the free gift of God in Christ. We, we don't pay to obtain salvation, but it does cost you to continue to follow Christ. And our theme idea for this series has been taken from Luke 14.33, where Jesus said, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce All that he has cannot be my disciple. I don't know how he could be clearer. And so we've been walking through John 15 and enumerating the costs involved with being a Christian. And one of the costs we saw last time is the cost of hateful persecution, incurring the hatred of what Jesus calls the world. And in this case, the world speaks of the ungodly, Satan-controlled, earthly systems and beliefs which rail against Christ, rail against the very holiness and standards of God. Jesus promised us, back in John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you were not of the world, but I chose you, but because you were not of the world, rather, be, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And we identified some ways to try to stay somewhat positive that persecution benefits the Christian, and it certainly does. But we also identified some major ways in our nation and in our culture that Christians are persecuted right now, this very moment. We looked at the arenas of the Bible. The world hates the Bible. And if you say the Bible says, they immediately discount you and they, they, they put you down. The arena of the family the family is now defined as whatever you want it to be, and it's it's under attack, just worse and worse with every generation. We looked at the arena of sexual perversions and, and the forced political correctness of accepting all forms of sexuality, which God defines as sin. We looked at the arena of education, the educational systems now, rather than trying to seek to simply teach facts or trying to teach ideology and and self-made morality. We we looked at politics, that it is political suicide to say, I am a born-again Christian who believes that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. The only standard of godliness and living that we have is the Bible. That You can't do that in politics. You're, You're seen as a nutcase if you do that. We are persecuted by Islam. That's not a a judgment call. That is statistically the number one cause of Christian persecution worldwide. And it's the top politically protected uh, religion in America. And then we saw also that we are enduring persecution from what we called pseudo-Christian apostasy, the Bethel churches, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, all of these pseudo-Christian cults that have infiltrated and and caused such great harm and such great difficulty. But Satan is clever and he's cruel because all of those things that, that we enumerated last time, they have something in common. What they have in common is that they're basically impersonal. They are grenades lobbed at Christians in general and we can all stand together as the church and we can take comfort with one another. But Satan is malicious. He's brutal. He's ruthless because persecution also comes in a very, very personal form. One which can make you feel literally all alone. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 14, beginning in verse 26. He said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we remember that when Jesus uses the term hate, he's not speaking of an emotional loathing toward father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. He's saying that the true follower of Christ will in many if not every circumstance be forced to follow christ above and over the love that you may have for those closest to you and so what jesus is doing in our text is he's warning that to follow him you must be prepared for relational fallout that there will be consequences and satan's tactic is so very cruel because to attempt to keep some of you some of those who are closest to you rather from the gospel so that they'll loathe you so that they'll look down on you this is the uh, this is the the essence of his cruelty remember satan is the prince of the power of the air he's the god of this world for the time being and second corinthians 4 3 and 4 says and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And when we speak of unbelievers in general, we can stand together and we can be comforted. We can pray for them. We can pray for one another. But following Christ begins to have a very real and a very intense cost when that unbeliever is the father who played with you in the backyard when you were a boy. When that unbeliever is the mother at whose breast you nursed and who nurtured you as a small child. When that unbeliever is the wife with whom you fell in love. When that unbeliever is the husband to whom you gave yourself. When that unbeliever is the son who made you a father or a mother for the first time. When that unbeliever is a daughter who was so cute and adorable as a little one. When that unbeliever is the brother with whom you played hide and seek. And had Christmases and birthdays with every year. When that unbeliever is the the sister who was your playmate and who was your friend when you were children. Now it's personal. Now it gets hard. And when those closest to you aren't following Christ and you are. You begin to feel this cost intensely. Because you have come to love Christ while they've scorned Christ. You've come to love the family of God and the church while they stay away and they're suspicious. You've cherished Christ likeness and sanctification while they've cherished their own sin and their own selfishness. You've received by grace the imputed righteousness of Christ while they're convinced of their own self-righteousness. You have a fear of standing before God in judgment and therefore you've received Christ's sacrifice on your behalf while they've trusted in their self-righteousness and they have no fear of God. You are most certainly headed for heaven and they are most certainly headed for hell. And now the divide gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it hurts. And when a once close relationship becomes strained and awkward and painful It seems that the more you long for their salvation and the more you speak to them of Christ, the more they resist, the more they oppose, the more they see you as in need of some sort of psychological intervention as a religious nutcase. And there's this difference in lordship you have Christ as your Lord. And they have themselves as their Lord. And this has great practical implications, has great challenges. What do I do when my child proclaims himself gay and wants me to meet his partner? What do I do? What do I do when my child is pursuing a relationship with an unbeliever and wants her to be an accepted part of our family? What do I do when my mom looks with disdain at my faith and interjects into our relationship nasty comments and put-downs all the time? What do I do when my spouse looks down on my faith in Christ and complains about how much time I spend at church? This gets very real, doesn't it? Now, the liberal unorthodox person who claims to follow Christ says the answer is blind acceptance. The answer is God loves everyone and would never be so cruel as to judge someone for the way they are. But of course, Scripture clearly says that the unbeliever will appear before God at the great white throne judgment. The books will be opened and they will account for every sin, for every transgression, every disdain of God's ways. And then on the other hand, you have the the staunch fundamentalist who draws a hard line in the sand and jumps pretty quickly to proactively breaking every relationship possible in the name of righteousness, doing things which certainly do not demonstrate Christ's love for the lost. So what do we do? Add to that the fact that every strained relationship with a close unbeliever comes in a variety of flavors and intensities. No two are alike. On one end of the spectrum, you have the close relationship who has essentially shunned you, shunned your faith, shunned all talk and mention of the gospel of Christ and has even become vicious and attacking because you do follow Christ. But then you have the other end of the spectrum. You have the close relationship who loves you, who adores you, who wants to have a relationship with you, who wants to be a part of your life but just doesn't want to follow Christ. And then in the middle, maybe the hardest one, You have the close relationship who is clearly not following Christ but believes that he is and yet wants to follow you and and to be with you. No fruit of salvation and yet wants to be a part of your life. And in all of this, the result can be is that you feel alone. You feel rejected. There's even confusion. You're made to feel even ridiculous sometimes. And so you need reassurance. You need Confidence. And as a matter of fact, that is exactly what our text this morning is designed to give you. Our text this morning sets up very much a legal scene. And this is a courtroom scene, so to speak, in which witnesses are called to testify that Jesus Christ is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, and that your stand for your faith, it won't go unnoticed, it won't go unhelped, it won't go without comfort. And so we could identify four witnesses To come to your defense, to come to your comfort. Four witnesses to help comfort you and to defend you. The first witness is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself. Verse 26, the Lord Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, this isn't the first time in the Gospels that we see a connection between persecution and the Holy Spirit. Just a few days earlier, before these events of John 15, Jesus told his disciples in Mark 13, verse 11, He said, "...and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." So we see this connection between persecution and the Holy Spirit, that we're to lean on the Spirit of God. We're to depend on the Spirit of God. We're to know that the Spirit of God is there with us. The Holy Spirit will be sent by God the Father at the request of God the Son, and the the ministry of the Spirit in, in many ways parallels the ministry of Christ. Jesus says here that the helper, the parakletos, meaning the advocate, the intercessor, the helper, will be sent from the Father. Numerous times just here in John's gospel, Christ says of himself that he was sent from the Father, that he came from God, and now the Holy Spirit will be sent in the same way from God, by God. Jesus has just claimed in chapter 14 to be the very truth of God from the Father, and here Jesus promises that the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father is coming. And what will the Spirit of truth do? He will bear witness about Christ. Now, this gets us into the theological realm of the doctrine of the call of God upon the lost. So we have to understand this to, to really grasp what Jesus is saying here. Theologians rightly characterize the call of God into two categories: the general call of God and the specific call of God. The, the general call of God is the call of God through the Holy Spirit upon all of humanity to repent and to receive the free gift of salvation through Christ. In fact, just below our text here, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in this general call to salvation. Look at John 16, verse 8. And when He, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. This is the idea of the Holy Spirit shaming the world, of casting a shadow on the world, of calling the world to repent, because the world has wickedly defied God and invented false religions, created moral chaos, and arrogantly deemed themselves as righteous apart from God. That's a, a general call given by the Holy Spirit. But then we see also the specific call. This is the call to the elect to repent and to receive the free gift of salvation through Christ. John thirteen forty eight very familiar to you. When the Gentiles heard this, speaking of the gospel and the opportunity to repent and believe, when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you notice it did not say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life? It was as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is what Paul witnessed with the unbelievers in Thessalonica to whom he preached Christ. First Thessalonians 1.5 Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So this is the Holy Spirit bringing witness of Christ. In fact, we see examples of the general call of God and the specific call of God in the ministry of Jesus himself. We see an example of the general call back in John chapter 7. You don't have to turn here. This is the last day of the Feast of Booths. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is street preaching at its best. A call to anyone who will listen. But we also have an example, many examples of a specific call. And the difference is clear. Matthew 9 verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. That is a specific call. And so like the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit issues a general call to salvation and a specific call to salvation, and both happen through the means of the verbal proclamation of the gospel. Through preaching, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit, to pierce the heart with the life-giving gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Now, how does this witness of the Holy Spirit, how, how does this encourage you when you're experiencing at some level or another the rejection of those whom you love? How does this encourage you? Well, maybe you've heard it said, maybe someone you love has said this to you well, look, you live your way and I'll live mine. Or I'm happy for you that your faith helps you. Or or maybe they've said, I have my own faith in my own way. In other words, what they're trying to do is put you on equal footing and say, you have your opinion and I have my opinion. Let's just let that be okay. Okay. And that's when you might feel a little ridiculous. But that's not what's actually happening here. That's like looking at a forest fire coming towards you. And you're saying, we must run from the fire and to safety. And your loved one says, I choose not to believe in the fire. That's just your opinion. No, the fact that the fire is coming is an objective fact. The Holy Spirit encourages us because he is God. And therefore, he is best qualified to judge what the standards of righteousness before God are. And he has judged, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, the, the pain and discomfort and disagreement that may exist between you and an unsaved loved one, this is not just a matter of your opinion versus my opinion. It is not a matter of that at all. No, the most objective and perfect authority in all the universe has judged that there is no one righteous, no, not one, and that only through faith in Christ can sin be forgiven. So, so be encouraged. You are not to be made to feel like a religious nutcase. You are not to be made to feel, to feel ridiculous. You have standing behind you the very witness of God himself and the Spirit who testifies to Christ. And who is the very one who warns that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? And so you transfer that from opinion to opinion to asking them, would you read what the Bible says? Forget what I say, read what the Bible says. And the Holy Spirit will be your comfort and will be your witness. There's a second witness to come to your defense and comfort. The apostles. The apostles, verse 27, Jesus continues... And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus has promised that these men, the 11 left after Judas, that after the ascension of Christ, these are the men who will bear witness to the world of Christ and to the gospel of Christ. This is their special role. This is a unique calling that will never be replicated, nor can it be, because Jesus gives the very simple qualification to be an apostle. You have been with me from the beginning they are apostles it's a greek word that means the sent ones i would imagine i wasn't there but i think we're human enough to imagine that when jesus said you have been with me from the beginning i would imagine that the memories of these men were suddenly flooded with mental images and and memories of the great adventures that they had had with jesus Astounding things that they had been seeing for the last 42 months or so. Memories of the most powerful preaching ever seen on earth. Memories of Jesus restoring sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and mobility to the paralyzed and speech to the mute. Jesus calling Israel's leaders names like sons of the devil and snakes and whitewashed tombs. I can imagine them just their jaws open looking at each other. Did he just really say that? Or how about Jesus calling Peter Satan for trying to divert him from the mission of the cross? I mean, I've I've confronted believers pretty, pretty heavily. Sometimes I've never called anybody Satan. How about Jesus walking on water? How about Peter almost walking on water? Jesus calming great storms with a word. Demon-agonized men and women set free instantaneously from the power of wickedness without even seemingly any effort made by Christ. Tens of thousands of people fed miraculously. Little toddlers instinctively running to sit on the lap of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kindness and mercy of Jesus to repentant tax collectors and beggars and prostitutes I would imagine he remember they would remember how he gave many of them nicknames. Simon, whom Jesus called Peter the Rock. James and John, whom he called the Sons of Thunder. James, the son of Alphaeus, that Jesus called James the Less. We would say Jimmy. Simon, not Simon Peter, who previously had been part of a radical group known as the Zealots. He repented after coming to Christ, but they still called him the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, not Judas Iscariot. Jesus called him Thaddeus, which means one who is not yet weaned. He called him sometimes Labaeus, which means heart child. In our 21st century, that means mama's boy. He's saying, grow up, be strong in the Lord. And those nicknames, how precious they must have been. Peter had always been called Simon, but you know what he called himself forever after that was Peter. And how they remembered that Jesus had raised the dead before their very eyes. Not just a dead person who maybe had been unconscious, but someone who was so dead that his body was decomposing. And Jesus raised him. They'd been with Jesus from the beginning. They'd seen it all. And he established this as the qualification of an apostle. And of course, there were the two late additions. After Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ, he was excluded and condemned as false. And so after the ascension of, of Christ, Peter stood among the apostles and he said in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness To his resurrection, they prayed specifically in Acts 1 to the ascended Jesus Christ. And as a result of the guidance of Christ, they chose Matthias. And of course, the most famous latecomer, Saul, also known as Paul, who was the persecutor. On his way to Damascus to persecute followers of Christ, he was confronted aggressively by none other than the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ himself. Here's what Jesus proclaimed of Saul. He said, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, this is interesting. Acts 9 records the abbreviated version of what Jesus said to Saul. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But when Paul gave the account of his conversion in Acts chapter 22, he included the detail that Jesus said to him, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Jesus of Nazareth was the human identifier of a specific person. In other words, there were more people than just one person named Jesus. And so Jesus identified himself. I'm the Jesus who is from Nazareth. Why would he say that? Because the apostle Paul knew who Jesus was when Jesus was still on earth. Paul was only a couple years younger than Jesus. They were almost the same age. Paul didn't just start hating Christians in a vacuum. He had been aware of the ministry of Christ. In other words, in some sense, Paul also was with Jesus from the beginning, just as a hater, not as a follower. And the Holy Spirit would use the proclamation of these specific men to prick the consciences of the lost in that first generation. And, and how effective was the Spirit's ministry through this baker's dozen of men? Angry unbelievers in Acts chapter 17 said they were, quote, men who have turned the world upside down. And how do we still turn the world upside down? By proclaiming the same message that the apostles proclaimed. And this is the great joy of proclaiming the gospel, isn't it? Whether it's from the pulpit or, or you in your personal interactions, the gospel is empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a living message which radically messes with the listener The gospel dogs the listener until they either repent or until they're hardened to the point beyond repentance. But when you proclaim the gospel, it it can't, it, it sticks, it can't go away. There's such power there. So, how does this witness of the apostles encourage you when you're experiencing it at some level or another the rejection of those whom you love? Do you love reading what the apostles wrote? under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit? Of course you do. Do you find comfort reading the words of Paul, the words of Peter, the words of John? Of course you do. Do you love imagining walking with them and seeing what they saw? I think every Christian experiences that. I think every Christian reads the words of the New Testament and you identify with these men even as they're identifying with Christ there's a way in which in a certain sense in which you identify with them in a little bit easier sense than you identify with Jesus because Jesus is utterly unattainable but Peter quote unquote foot in the mouth Peter he's a lot easier to identify with have you ever thought of the apostles as your friends they are they are they're your human friends Great friends of the faith to remind you of the sweetness of your salvation and to continue to have hope for your lost loved ones. You have friends, Matthew and John and Peter and Paul. And you can relate to the deep yearning of those men to see their loved ones saved. They all had unsaved loved ones too. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 9, 3, he said, I wish that I could myself be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You have friends who understand. You have coming to your defense and comfort, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the apostles. There's a third witness to come to your defense and comfort. This is Christ himself. Look with me at chapter 16, verse 1. Christ himself I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus is warning them that persecution is coming. He's telling them now to keep them from falling away. Uh, falling away, it's a Greek word. We get our word scandal from this. Uh, to, it means to stumble. It means to cause to sin. In this case, it means to cause to give up the Christian faith. Now, this doesn't imply that the true believer can, in fact, fall away. Uh, John 3 teaches the new birth and no place in the New Testament teaches that a truly born-again person can become an unborn-again person. And yet it does speak once again to the call to persevere. And here's, our, here's our dichotomy, here's our irony. The New Testament is filled with the comforts of the security of our salvation. John ten twenty eight Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 1 John 5.11, this is the testimony that God gave, past tense, us eternal life. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have, present tense verb, eternal life. But this comfort in the security of our salvation is counterpointed by the call to Endure. The admonitions of Jesus to the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 all contain commands to conquer, to endure, to persevere, to prove your faith genuine. The Apostle Paul wrote very challengingly in 1 Corinthians 10-12, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. He wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13-5, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And here Jesus goes on to say in chapter 16, verse 2, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now here, Jesus is specifically speaking of the rejection that the apostles will endure at the hands of their own countrymen, their fellow Jews, their family, to put it that way. To be put out of the synagogue as a Jew, this was was life-changing. This was life-changing because generally speaking, to be put out of one synagogue meant you were put out of all of them. Uh, Imagine how effective church discipline would be if all the churches in town cooperated. Now church discipline is what it ought to be. But this is put in the negative. This is being put out of the synagogue because you believe in Christ. And it had major implications, two of them. One was social and one was eternal. The social implication was massive to be disfellowshipped meant that you lost your social system. You weren't invited to your friends' events, such as weddings and funerals. You couldn't come to their events. They wouldn't come to yours. Can I put it this way? To be kicked out of the synagogue meant from here on out, everybody in your town, your village, your city that knew you would treat you as if you were dead. It was a massive problem. There was also an eternal implication to being put out of the synagogue many rabbis taught that prayer was not effective, was not heard by God unless it was offered in the synagogue. Now, we know that's not true, but if you believed it was true, to put someone out of the synagogue was in essence an attempt to cut someone off from access to God. Massive eternal implication. And even worse, and and this is so twisted, Jesus said that Whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Those doing the persecuting and rejecting may actually think they're, they're doing God's work. Now, this was obvious in the case of Saul prior to his conversion. Galatians 1 records, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely jealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. When Paul was murdering and imprisoning Christians, he genuinely thought he was serving God. But maybe less obvious to us is the rejection and the persecution by those who do so under the misguided belief that they're representing that which is right, that which is good, and even their false view of a God who never loves, or who always loves, rather, and, and never judges. Listen, anyone who disagrees with the Christian faith, make no mistake whether they say they're religious or not, they are always promoting an alternative religious code. Always. There is a false religious code promulgated today in the name of self-righteousness. Self-righteous, self-made religious declarations such as all people are innately good except those who say we're not. Which of course is an intellectual contradiction but we won't go there. How about this self-made proclamation? We're to be tolerant of all behaviors and lifestyle choices except when it comes to those who believe what the Bible says. How about this one? Inanimate objects kill people, and sin has nothing to do with murder. How about this one? If you say the Bible condemns deviant sexuality, you are a hater. You could go on and you could fill this in. These are religious statements in the name of being good, in the name of being self-righteous. But Christ himself has offered to witness to us that these things were going to happen. How in control of every single trial and tribulation at the hands of the unbeliever? How in control is the Lord Jesus Christ? How sovereign is the sovereign God? What kind of sovereign rule is he exerting? Jesus is so sovereign that he's already identified the persecutors and he's already told them what they're going to do. Did you know that? Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Therefore... I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Isn't that comforting to know that Jesus has already told the persecutors what they're going to do and how he's going to condemn them for it? He's already told them. So Jesus has basically warned the apostles here of two types of persecution that will happen to them exclusion from the Jewish community and attempts on their lives, all of which, almost all of which, rather, will eventually be successful, by the way. But here's the encouragement the encouragement is so clear. They're completely identifying with Christ in their exclusion and in their death. In John chapter 9 and 10, not only was Jesus judged unworthy of synagogue fellowship, chapter 9, verse 22 says that anyone who confessed Jesus to be Messiah was to be put out of the synagogue as well. And then the Gospels record five different attempts to take Jesus' life before he finally allows his own death on the sixth attempt. And so they're they're relating to Christ. He's basically saying, I know what you're going through. I'm going through it too. So how does this witness of Christ, how does this encourage you when you're experiencing the rejection of those whom you love? Well, Jesus is telling us in advance that this rejection is going to happen. He's demonstrating his total sovereignty. There's there's no rejection that's to be a surprise. And in fact, he reiterates this in verse 4. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. What is their hour? Jesus told those who were arresting him, it's your hour. And the implication is for the moment. You'll have a brief moment to work out your wickedness. You'll have a brief moment to think you're in charge. You'll have a brief moment to think you are the the arrogant heads of all things on earth. It is your hour now. Implication, it will be my hour later. Great comfort in this. He's giving comfort by telling us what's going to happen and, and assuring us of his total control and dominance over the situation. He's not being dishonest. He's honest with what's happening. He's not being like the dad who had a little boy who was time for his immunization. And when it was time for immunization, he decided not to tell his preschool little boy what was happening. And when they arrived and the little boy saw the sign and asked, what does D-O-C-T-O-R spell? And dad said that spells ice cream so that he wouldn't be scared. That's wrong. He should have said, you are going to get a shot. It's going to hurt, but I will be there and it will be okay. Jesus is a loving father who's truthful and clear that pain and difficulty is coming, but he'll be right there and the end will be sweet. The end will be victorious. And here's the irony. Here's the paradox. The unbeliever thinks in their own self-righteousness that... That somehow he's offering to God something good. He's being good. He's being righteous by his rejection, his persecution of you, his his putting down, his denigration of the gospel. And and they think they're doing something righteous. Just read the news every day. Uh, Both religious and political liberals are the most self righteous people walking this planet. They think they're so good. They're doing all these supposedly good things because of goodness. They think they're doing something right. But here's the irony even though they think they're doing something good for God. In fact, you do become a sweet offering to God when you endure persecution. In other words, that which was meant by the unbeliever to hurt you is used by God as the means to reward you. And so in the very real sense, they are making an offering to God and it's one which will benefit you. You have coming to your defense and comfort. The witness of the Holy Spirit. The witness of the apostles. And the witness of Christ himself. One more witness. To come to your defense and comfort. The Father. God the Father. Verse 3 of chapter 16. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Jesus states a relational fact in negative form. That those who reject you and persecute you do not know the Father. The reason they don't know the Father is because they don't know the Son. And in this context, the idea of knowing speaks of a reconciled, friendly relationship. And they don't have that. Because of the faith and forgiveness of Christ, though, you may say not just that you know of God and that you know of Christ, but you know God and you know Christ. There's a a covenant relationship which now exists, a love relationship which now exists. The Apostle Paul makes this simple distinction in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verse 8, formerly you did not know God. The next verse, but now that you have come to know God. But he gives an even greater detail. He says, or rather to be known by God, indicating that God sought you before you would ever seek him. Second Thessalonians 1, 8 says that those who, quote, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus are those who do not know God. Clear distinction. Clear distinction. And so Jesus is saying that those who reject you, those who persecute you, are doing so because they don't know the Father. And this is good to remember because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God the Father. They're rejecting God the Son. They're rejecting God the Spirit. They're hating His holiness. They're hating His love. They're hating His goodness. They're hating His righteousness. They're hating everything there is about God. But what does this persecution say about you? Jesus said this in the negative They do these things because they have not known the Father. They're done to you because you do know the Father. This is very encouraging. You are in an intimate covenant relationship with the God of creation. What does it mean that you know God? What does this mean? Let's have a little list. It means that he sent angels to minister to you. Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Can you imagine that? You know God, therefore he sends angels out to help you. It means that his wrath will never touch you. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. It means that you have full access to God in your prayers to meet all your needs. Hebrews 4.16 speaks of confidently drawing near to the throne of grace. Knowing God means that His Word is now understandable and comprehensible to you. 1 Corinthians 2.12, we receive not the Spirit from the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. I love to see the look on a new believer's face when their, their eyes are sagging and they're falling asleep. And I say, what happened to you? I was up all night. I read the New Testament 15 times because it opens up. Knowing God means that you have all the rights and the privileges of an adopted child of God, including addressing God as your father. Romans 8.17 says that your adoption by God makes you a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. That's phenomenal. Knowing God means that you'll be rescued from the wickedness of this world. Galatians 1.4 says that Christ, quote, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present age. Knowing God means that we're part of the family of God, of all who have ever come to faith in him through all the ages. Hebrews 12 says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before whom we will join, become part of them. You're related by the blood of Christ to Moses, Aaron, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Noah, Job, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you name it. We're all the chosen people of God together. Knowing God means you bear titles. Did you know that you have titles? One verse alone, Colossians 3:12 calls you God's chosen ones, God's holy ones, God's beloved ones. Those are royal titles. Knowing God means that you're guaranteed eternal life with God and in resurrected, sinless perfection. First Thessalonians 4 tells the story that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Then the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Knowing God means that the Son of God, the very Son of God, is even at this moment, Preparing a welcome place for you in heaven. John 14, 3, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And you're also outfitted for a life back on earth, serving the King of Kings when he returns. I I know we talk about the millennial kingdom. Do you grasp that you will be there? Do you grasp that you will see it? Not only will you see it, you've been outfitted to serve. Revelation nineteen fourteen says the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Christ on white horses. That's you. That's you. It means that you will personally witness what a Jesus run earth is like. Oh election day is gonna be fabulous in that day. And you'll be a vital part of reigning with him. Revelation 20 says this. It means that you will personally witness the inauguration of the final glorious state of God's creation, the new heaven and the new earth and new Jerusalem. Why do you get all these privileges? Very simply because you know the Father. And you came to know the Father because you know Christ. You did nothing to know the Father. The Father chose you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, and now you know him and you do and you will enjoy all those amazing benefits and blessings, which Psalm 16 summarizes by simply saying, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a great encouragement to know the Father. Now, How does this witness of the Father encourage you when you're experiencing at some level or another the rejection of those you love? When rejection comes, when hard decisions have to be made, when these difficult times are there, when your heart is broken by those you love the most, remember this, I know the Father. I know the Father. I know the Father. And you keep him close because all the attendant blessings that come with knowing him Are yours. Aren't these precious witnesses? This is an all star lineup. The Holy Spirit, the Apostles, Christ Himself, God the Father. This is very Trinitarian comfort with the Apostles thrown in for good measure. I know for many of you, this is not a theoretical, theological discussion or debate. This is your life. The following Christ does incur the cost of rejection by those you love. And so in the spirit of practicality, I want to close our time by offering a reminder, a caution, and a hope. A reminder, a caution, and a hope. The reminder is pray for those you love who reject the gospel. Pray for them. We have two stellar examples of what to do with those who reject us and who reject the gospel. From the cross, Jesus prayed for his executioners. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. As he was being stoned to death, Stephen fell to his knees and, quote, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As a matter of fact, using and quoting from Acts chapter 7 about Stephen When Sir Thomas More, who at the time was the Lord Chancellor of England under Henry VIII, when he was about to be unjustly executed, here's what he said to his judges. He said that he would, quote, right heartily pray that though your lordships have now here on earth been judges to my condemnation, we may yet hereafter in heaven merrily all meet together to our everlasting salvation. The reminder is to pray. For those you love who reject the gospel, pray for them that the Lord remove their hearts. Be concerned for them, not for yourself. Listen, your pain will end. Theirs has yet to begin. Let me offer a caution. The idea of being rejected is not a reason to go and destroy relationships with people who don't follow Christ. Christ. Rather, if another threatens your relationship because you do follow Christ, now you're experiencing rejection. But I know this involves difficult decisions, very difficult decisions, which might be different for different people. What do you do with an unbelieving spouse? What do you do with an unbelieving adult child? What do you do with an unbelieving adult child marrying an unbeliever? What do you do with an unbelieving adult child with a gay partner? What do you do with an unbelieving parent who drives you crazy with guilt trips, a sassy mouth, and criticism? On and on and on. Listen, just drawing a line in the sand and outright rejecting the other person as a human being probably won't accomplish anything. And it can be a means of thinking that you're being rejected when, in fact, you're the one doing the rejecting. You can say, we will always love you, and we will always treat this person in your life with respect and kindness and love. But when you're in our home, we will talk openly of our faith in Christ. We will open the Bible. We will pray. We will sing. You're welcome all the time, but we will do those things. And now if a family member or a loved one, as you proclaim your faith, says, I don't want you to do that, now you've been gracious, and the rejection is coming from them, not from you. First Peter 3, Peter addresses the situation of, an, of a believing wife with an unbelieving husband who's still invested in the marriage. Peter doesn't instruct the believer to be harsh or to be distant in the name of defending the faith. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be, what's the word, one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct He goes on to say in verse 4, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. In the previous chapter, Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, meaning the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Every time in the New Testament, When there's the phrase of a human being glorifying God, it always means coming to faith in Christ. What is Peter saying to do? He's saying, play the long game. Have a relationship at whatever depth you possibly can manage, playing the long game and believing that in the end, they will be saved. And finally, let me give you a hope. We said earlier Jesus gave the cost of being a believer. He said in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. But he also said in Mark 10, 29 and 30, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life? I, I get brothers and sisters and mothers and children a hundred times over? How is that? Look around. I have one earthly brother. I have dozens and dozens of you in this room. What is that? That's a fulfillment of exactly what Jesus said would happen if you follow Christ. And so while you may be rejected by those related to you by human blood, you always have the family of those related to you by the blood of Christ. Amen. You're never alone. You're never without family. Even in the midst of rejection, you have the family of God. Yes, it costs to follow Christ, but the rewards are infinitely greater. Infinitely greater. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now in thankfulness for the purifying effect of persecution. It is because of persecution and loss that the true churches is exposed. Because fakes do not stand in the midst of persecution. They do not remain under the withering sunlight of those who would burn at our faith. So, Lord, we are thankful. We're thankful for one another. We're thankful for all the encouragement you give. Encouragement from the Holy Spirit. Encouragement from God the Son. Encouragement from you, our Father. Encouragement even from the apostles, our, our dear friends in the faith. We've never met them face to face, but we know them so well. We have their very words before us. And so, Lord, we we give you thanks. And I do pray for those many situations, even within our own body, where there are those who have not yet come to faith in Christ, those who are even belittling of their faith, belittling of our Lord. Lord, we would play the long game. We pray for their salvation. We pray for a day when meekly some would walk through our doors, having come to faith, and would be baptized and align themselves with Jesus Christ and with the church. Lord, we pray for those among us who are currently suffering under that difficult situation of loved ones and family members and close friends who are rebelling and, and causing division. We pray, Lord, for the grace to be loving and kind, to be, to be those that demonstrate the love of Christ in ways that are overwhelming and that are unmistakable so that they would glorify God in the end so that they would glorify God in the day of visitation when Christ returns. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to the end, that we would endure, that we would persevere, so that Christ might be honored and glorified. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.